Turn with me to two places in your Bibles, uh, Matthew chapter 24, also known as the Olivet Discourse. We'll get into that several times over the next couple of weeks. No one knows more about the future than Jesus, so we want to start with him. One of his names involves the future, so we'll talk about... Matthew 24 a couple times over the next couple weeks, and then turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 22, and if you know your Bible, that is the last chapter of the last book. It truly is the end of the story. So we're going to, you ever read the end of the book for just a second, you know, and then you go back and we're going to do a little bit of kind of that. John's ending is more of a benediction and a closing than it is telling the whole story. So you're not, you're not going to miss anything by us doing that. But first, Matthew 24, starting in verse 1. This is just days before Jesus goes to the cross. Uh, Jesus spoke most on the end times in the latter days just before going to the cross. Sit there on the Mount of Olives with his um, disciples, which hence why it's called the Olivet Discourse. Verse 1, Matthew 24, then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the building of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. By the way, one kind of parallel between what they were doing here and what we do. Um, the temple was a magnificent structure. In my view, I know that the seven wonders of the world, the only existing ancient wonders of the world right now is the pyramids there in Giza. All the other of the seven ancient wonders of the world are gone. We, we know about them historically from historical writings of the Greeks and Josephus and people like that, but the temple surely should have been in the list. The fact that it's not is my own view. Maybe it's anti-Semitism, maybe it's ignorance, I don't know, but the temple was one of the ancient wonders of the world. Now, it doesn't go far as far back timeline as the pyramids, for example, but nevertheless, an amazing structure. And the way they looked at it, the apostles, no matter how many times they'd seen the temple, they couldn't stop looking at it. It was amazing. It dwarfed the landscape. It dwarfed the city of Jerusalem. It was massive. It had gold at the very top. It was bright and marble on the temple part, but then limestone that it literally... Jerusalem's called the golden city. It would shine at the Jerusalem you know, time of sunset, which we call the golden hour. Uh, it, was, it was magnificent. The same way we look at incredible buildings, many people want to stand and look up at the Eiffel Tower. They want to once uh, look at the Space Needle. They want to get to the tr World Trade Center. They want to see the Sears Tower, the John Hancock building. And so we kind of understand their impression with this architecture. But Jesus said, no matter how amazing it looks, like when I was standing at the World Trade Center, I didn't think in 1999, I bet in two years these won't be here. That did not dawn on me at all. I did not think that. That thought never entered my mind. I said, well, I'll come back. I'm going up top. That's what my, my thought was. The disciples looked at it and Jesus said, oh, by the way, that won't be here. They were like, what is he talking about? So it goes on in verse 3, now as they sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came in privately. They're like, hey, you said the temple isn't going to be there. Can you tell us what will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? They knew that the world will come to an end. They wanted to understand it. 
And Jesus answered them and said, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, and I am the Christ and will deceive many. Let's pray. Father, we... Oh, Revelation 22. Turn there first real quick. I've never broken the middle of prayer ever. There's a first for everything in life, so... If you're ever going to break in prayer, it's to read God's Word is fine. <laughs> Other things don't do that, you know. But if you're reading His Word, which actually supersedes, supersedes whatever can come out of my mouth, then we can do this. All right. Revelation 22, last verses, starting verse 18. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. That doesn't sound good, does it? And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies these things, now Jesus, red letter right here, surely I am coming quickly. Didn't he say this two years ago? Well, Jesus doesn't look at time the same way as you and I do. looks at it like a map. He looks at 9-11 like it happened two seconds ago, and he looks at right now as it's in the future or the past. But when he says quickly, comparative to the first 4,000 years, we're a lot closer. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now we can pray. Lord, we echo John's closing here with an amen, with an agreement. Amen mean we agree. We agree, Lord, that you are coming quickly. We agree, Lord, that many are using your name deceptively. We agree that the temple is no longer there, but one is going to come back. We agree, Lord, that you are coming because you came the first time, you will come the second time. And Lord, we just ask that you would use this time in your word, this series, to draw us nearer to you. I pray for your help in teaching it. Lord, remove me from the equation that we all might hear from Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. This story that I'm about to read to you uh, is adapted from Lloyd Corey's 1977 book, quote unquote. 1977, ancient times, right? Right. Remember way back then? <laughs> Gas crisis years, all that stuff. But 1977, that this book came out. But the true story that, he, that he's going to tell is from way back in the 30s. And uh, he writes this true story. He said, a number of years ago, there appeared in the New Yorker magazine. Remember that? I think it's still around. The New Yorker magazine is still around. Uh, the New Yorker magazine, an account of a Long Island resident who ordered an extremely expensive barometer from a respected company named Abercrombie and Fitch. Now, some of you teens are like, hold on. That's the clothing store in the mall, right? No. Same name, different store. Matter of fact, originally, originally Abercrombie and Fitch, which was founded in 1892 by David Abercrombie and in partnership with Ezra Finch, they were two businessmen from New York. It was founded to be a sporting goods. It was like the Great Gadsby period if you wanted to order clay pigeons and shotguns and canoes, and literally you could order hot air balloons. They don't really sell those anymore to just any random person, but. Liability was different back in those days. And all kinds of stuff. You could buy all this kind of stuff, wading boots up to here, and it was expensive. It was high-end stuff. They had a store in New York, and eventually they built one in Chicago. But the company was later sold. Um, it went bankrupt in 19, I want to say 76. The, uh, 
The teen clothing store came later because the naming rights were rebought in 1978 and then eventually resold to a company called The Limited. And then The Limited then turned them into a teen, rebranded the whole thing, and launched it all over again. Now, I digress. Back to the story. Back to the purchase of this expensive barometer. Uh, when the interest, uh, this is how the story reads, true story. When the instrument arrived at his home, the man who purchased it was uh, disappointed to discover that the, ind- uh, the indicating needle appeared to be stuck on the sector marked hurricane. After shaking the barometer vigorously several times, which is never a good idea for sensitive equipment, and never getting the needle point to move, the owner wrote a scathing letter to the store. And on the following morning, on his way to his office in New York City, he mailed it. That evening, he returned to Long Island to find not only that the barometer was missing, but his home was missing as well. The needle of the instrument had been pointed correctly. The month, similar month, September 1938, the day the terrible hurricane that swept over Long Island came, kind of came out of nowhere, that almost leveled Long Island. He was warned... But he was not prepared. He was warned, but he didn't believe the warning. He was warned, but he said, oh, I don't know what they're talking about. Sound familiar? In our world today? You're holding in your hands the inspired Word of God. And if we considered it to be like a weather barometer, it has been pointing, the needle has been pointing to the return of Jesus Christ ever since John wrote what he wrote, and actually ever since Jesus rose out of the tomb. It's been pointing to his return, and he says it's soon, and he says it's coming, and you can shake your Bible vigorously, but it isn't going to change. The needle's still pointing in that direction, right? It's still pointing in that direction. Beginning with the temple, and everything else that Jesus said has already happened, or is happening, or will happen. So the question that some have is, well, why do we need to study Bible prophecy? If it's all going to happen anyway, why do I need to know about it? Why can't I just kind of let what happens happen? Well, for one, if you study the Bible, if you actually read your Bible, and I hope that if you haven't, you'll read it all the way through Genesis to Revelation, then start all over again. Get through the whole book. But if you do read your Bible, you're going to think about prophecy. Why? Because one-fourth of the Bible is, prof- is prophecy in nature. One-fourth. About every one in every four verses. About Half of the prophecies have already been fulfilled, and half remain to be fulfilled. And they'll be fulfilled at a much faster rate at the end. There's a term that NASA would use uh, when they launch, well, they, used to, they still launch space shuttles. I don't think they're, they close that whole thing down, right? They're sh- shutting it down. But it used to be when they would launch a space shuttle, the space shuttle would launch, and then when it reached a certain maximum speed, it has this other fuel booster that the second rocket will launch, and then it sends it into a much higher speed, and it, it's an exponential increase speed. Uh, physicists call it vector, when you can send it into a much higher speed of rate, a rate of speed. And that's what happens as we get to the end. God, the rocket boosters come, and, and the prophecies, the last half, will fulfill much faster than the first half. Make sense? The rocket booster hasn't been fully released yet, but it will. The second reason... Not only will all of this be visible as you study the Bible, 
not only is a quarter of the Bible prophecy, but Paul also told the early church that he had not shunned to declare to them the whole counsel of God, not just the parts that he liked, not just the parts that he thought, well, this is important, but maybe it doesn't, doesn't matter if Paul or me thinks it's important. If it's in here, it's important. And so we teach it all. All the commands, all the doctrines, all the truths related to salvation, all the truths related to sanctification, all the truths related to glorification, but also the truths related to prophecy and the end times. Even more importantly, Jesus told us to be watching and waiting, and he said that we needed to understand the signs, and we needed to know what they were, the signs of his coming, which is, uh, requires us to be reminded of these things and to review them. And lastly, there is given a beautiful promise in the introduction of the book of Revelation. Some of you are familiar with it, Revelation 1-3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things that are written for the time is near. Do you know that every time you believe that something is near, you stay a little more ready? True? That goes with everything. If you believe the light could turn at any moment, you're less likely to be doing this. And if the person in front of you is doing it, you do this. You lay on the horn, right? <laughs> if you believe that the plane is taking off soon, you make sure you have your bags ready to jump and jump in line, right? right. Near. Time is near. I believe this promise, though, the blessing, this blessing, uh, I believe it also extends to all the scriptural prophecies. Even though John writes it about Revelation, I believe he is also, since he's writing the closing book, inclusive of all of the scriptures. If you're taking notes, you see the title this morning, Understanding the Times, and this is uh, the prophecy or portrait of prophecy series. The specific uh, today is about be aware, and we'll look at um, uh, four over the next four weeks um, different aspects of prophecy. But this morning we'll be looking at the prevalence of prophecy in Scripture, its purpose in our lives as believers. Uh, and followers of Jesus, and it's trustworthiness that we that we know that we know that these things will come to pass. We can look at its accuracy over the last six thousand years. Now, we're not studying eschatology, which is the study of end times. We're not studying eschatology and prophecy to be scholars. Although some of you are young enough to still become a scholar in it, or if you're retired or semi-retired, you have more time to become a scholar in it. That's fine. But we're studying it to be faithful servants and witnesses of Jesus. That's what he's called us to be. Witnesses in a world that doesn't know these things, that's still in darkness, that can't see the relevance of the things that are happening around them. And none of this, and we have enough things in this world to scare us as it is, none of this is to scare us but to prepare us by the Holy Spirit. The world's always trying to scare us. Jesus is never trying to scare us. He's always preparing us. He's not the author of fear or confusion, and we see a lot of both these days, right? Fear and confusion. Now, I've been studying the scriptures personally and reading them and listening to subject matter experts related to prophecy for 26 years. Uh, from the time I got saved in 1994, I immediately started to immerse myself, learn what I could, hear what I can hear, read what I can read. 
Up on the screen is a lot of terms related to prophetic events. You probably recognize many of the terms that are up there. Um, I can look at them all. That's a, that's, a view, that's a view inside my brain sometimes, uh, which kind of feels like that on any given week, actually, depending on how many things I'm pulling together for a study. But all of those things actually do make sense, and they can be put in some sense in a linear line, but not everything fits in a linear line. Why? Because some things God hasn't fully revealed to us. But He's revealed a lot, and even though these things, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, the biblical prophecy and things related to prophetic passages and certain timelines and even certain rules of interpretation, hermeneutics, all of these things, you take them all together, it can be complex. But there's numerous things that God has fully explained as well. And we always start with what we do know, right? You always start with what you do know. This, every bit, remember Jesus, he said he's the chief cornerstone. And you always start with the cornerstone. And the fact of the matter is there's always enough that we can understand. If we start with what we do understand, then God starts to fill in the gaps. Some things will remain mysterious until the very end of the age. Amen? Until the second we're in the clouds and we might be standing there with Jesus and all of a sudden ten light bulbs go off. And we all simultaneously look at each other and say, we were all wrong. Right? There's going to be some of that. Definitely going to be some of that. But we'll be okay to be wrong then because we'll be, we weren't wrong on things that were essentials of the faith, but we could be wrong on, oh, I thought it would, I thought it would be after this or before this, that kind of stuff. That said, many things can also be clearly understood and simplified even out of all the things from Genesis to Revelation because there's a lot and it can be simplified down. The people over there uh, the servants that are there serving the kids are doing that right now. We believe that kids can learn the Bible just like adults. Amen. But we have to simplify it down age appropriate. Amen? Yes. Although we've had some teachers, that's just transubstantiation kids, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, we have had some of that too, but that's okay. Bring them up a little bit. We're dumbing society down and in so many ways. Why don't we just go against the grain and do the opposite? But our prophetic baseline here in 2021 is even clearer than at any point in history because some things have happened now that would have been different if you lived in let's say 1921 or 1821. Prophecy generally becomes clearer as time goes on. And entire camps of prophetic kind of, well I see it this way realize they're both wrong and maybe hey this is maybe a little more a better understanding of things. But today's study it's meant to be foundational uh, again, today is more, I'm talking about be aware, and then uh, the following week I've titled be watchful, and then the week after that, let me get my glasses on, be understanding, and then uh, October 4th, be ready. So the next week is more about the prophecies related to what all the end times leading up to the tribulation. And then the week after that we'll look at the great tribulation, the seven year period where literally all hell will break loose on earth. And things that the world's never seen on a scale it's never seen. Like It would be like hundreds of 9-11s at the same time. And then lastly, we'll look at coming, kind of bring it all back to focus on October 3rd on the promise of Jesus' imminent return. I still believe in the rapture. There's people that don't. 
There might be some of you in here that don't. I have some of my Reformed brothers and pastors that are amillennial or post-millennial or uh, you know, the, uh, post-tribulation. All believers that are at least orthodox in their belief that Jesus is the only way to salvation, that he raised from the dead, and that he's coming again, and that we need the Holy Spirit, and we receive the Holy Spirit with salvation, and all of that, we all believe that we will all be reunited with Christ. We don't all believe on the same timeline. Uh, so I'm just telling you up front, I am pre-tribulation. I believe in a seven-year uh, tribulation. I believe the millennium comes after that. So we'll get into all of that. And then again, you can learn what you learn or, you know, again, you can study other things that are out there. But uh, again, there are good brothers and sisters in Christ who love the Lord that see some of the prophetic things differently, but they're non-essential to the faith. Just want to let you know. Uh, but I hope, again, that these things will encourage all of us that we're looking to Jesus. We've become more ready. Now there's four approaches to prophetic. Uh, there's not just four approaches, but um, when you look at Scripture and you try and fit it into a time frame, um, first of all, uh, let me say something about the word apocalypse. It's up there. Uh, a lot of people use this term today. Hollywood loves to use the word apocalypse. I'm pretty sure they don't know what it means <laughs> because they use it synonymously with Armageddon and they don't know what either term means, but they have reshaped, like, like our society's done, they've, they've reshaped lots of words in our country and our young people don't know what they mean anymore. Like in other words, if you said after 9-11, what happened within the weeks after 9-11? Everyone slapped on their car a bumper sticker. I did not because I hated the term. Power of pride. My bumper sticker would have said post 9-11, power of humility. But we slapped on our cars, power of pride, had a little flag, and it were, it were all over America. I mean, even people that formerly hated the country slapped power of pride on there, and, and it was on there. If you asked a kid today, what does the power of pride mean? They would think it means a month in June that's celebratory. That's how words change in less than 20 years. The term, you ask a 15-year-old right now, what does the power of pride mean to you? Oh, that's the gay rights movement. They would have no idea. Oh, no, no, well, I'm talking about the bumper sticker thing post-9-11. There's no context there. But to go back um, to the scriptures, when you look at history, or you look at the scriptures, and you're trying to say, all right, where does prophecy fit from a historical, is it, is it past, is it present, is it future? Um, the word apocalypse means uncovering, unveiling. That's what it means. So that's rarely what Hollywood means when they say apocalypse. They mean like cities exploding. It can be that, but it can also be the glorious return of Jesus. It can be the bride of Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's an unveiling. It's a showing you things you did not know. Pulling the curtain back, if you will. That's what apocalypse of an, uh, an uncovering, a revelation. Of these four views, you have uh, people in the body of Christ who are pure futurists. Um, and and not, not pure, uh, but they still believe, and I, I fall into the futurist camp, but I don't fall in any one camp, and I'll tell you that in just a second. The, uh, the apocalyptic text or prophetic text would be predictive events that have not yet occurred. And I believe that a lot of things that are in the Bible have not yet occurred. 
there are, the reason why this is important is you have plenty of people in the body of Christ that don't believe there's anything left other than us being gathered with Jesus. That's it. That the only thing left is us to be gathered with Jesus. They're taking a huge chunk of Scripture and they either have to call it symbolic or that it already took place. And so you have the historicist view that different epochs of time uh, represent this was this age, this was this age, but it all already happened, and it was Babylon, or it was Greece, or it was the Roman Empire, and it was all in these different epochs of time. And then you have the idealist who looks at prophecy and says, well, it's always symbolic. Like the word we, if, if you say that great serpent of old, that title is in Scripture, who do you know that to be? Satan. It's a, it, it's a illustration of who Satan is, but we know that he's a fallen angel. He didn't come out of heaven shaped like a serpent, but he acts like a serpent. He can come on out of nowhere and just out of the put the fangs in you. So we understand, but so they kind of, there are people that are idealists, they look at all of prophetic as allegory, as, and, and that's fine, there's plenty of that in the Bible. Jesus did this, he taught parables, right? In his parables, he would be talking about something that was analogous to a truth, but then he'd follow that up with something like, go and sin no more, which is concrete, and you knew it, or, or and so it will be at the end of the age when the Father judges, or something to those kind of terms. Then you have the preterist, and the preterist view, uh, which is from the Latin word uh, preteris, it means past or bygone, it's that all the uh, apocalyptic texts in the Bible are, uh, they're all symbolic, but, or they are representations, symbolic, or they're representations of things that happened up to AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. In other words, they fit everything in that 30, 40 year window um, and say all of it was under Nero and Diocletian and the fall of Jerusalem, and the persecutions, and Rome is the great beast, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, did you know that it can be both and? And of course, the way I view it, all four of these are always in play, depending on context. Example. In the book of Revelation, it, it says that there's coming a time that every single mountain and island on earth will be moved out of its place. Have we ever seen an earthquake like that? No. Does the Bible say one is coming like that? Yes. Do you want to be here when that happens? No. <laughs> I've been through a couple. We were one in Guatemala. We were, it got our attention big time. Um, so all of these uh, are found in the scriptures, I believe. So I am uh, I'm absolutely, in other words, someone who's a preterist will never be a futurist. But because I'm a futurist, I actually can see all the others. I actually do believe that there's some is idealistic. I do believe that some is historical. I do believe in the half of prophecies that have already taken place. But I also believe in the prophecies that have yet to take place. And I believe that all of it is spelled out in the context. If you take scripture out of context, you can create your own little theologies. But as long as you keep it in context, it, uh, it, we understand the meaning. I, cre I created a paragraph, and I'm going to show it to you in a second. I'm going to forewarn. The paragraph I created is based on current 
economic facts. It's based on literal historic facts. But I wrote my own little what you could call, if it was prophetic, it's not prophetic. I'm not saying this is a prophecy. I'm saying it's an example of all four of these in a single paragraph in our contemporary language. So let me show it to you. This would be contemporizing all of these things. If I said the United States with its 28.7 trillion in debt, and that is our current debt, by the way, although if you watch the debt clock, you ever watch it? It moves nonstop. And it's 125.7% debt to GDP ratio, which is not good. Is staring at a future market collapse that exceeds the collapse of the 1929 stock markets. That actually did happen. Resulting in the Great Depression. That actually happened. The captains of industry and the political leaders built a house of cars nearly 100 years ago that is being rebuilt in our lifetime, only it's a far larger house. It's made of many more cards. If I wrote that, I'm not prophesying. Although all of that could happen. We do have a house of cards in Wall Street. We do have a debt ratio that is far exceeds what we actually produce. We spend 120, we bring in 100%, we spend 125%. We do have a market that is built on not fundamentals, but a lot of flaws, right? But we understand that there's uh, terminology. There's no such thing as a house of cards. Wall Street's not made of, it's made of numbers and electronics and a bunch of guys waving numbers. You know, if you've seen how the Wall Street works and all that kind of stuff, it's not a house of cards, but we understand the term. And so we see all this in Scripture. God will use, if he calls Satan the great dragon... We know that Satan is not necessarily a dragon, but he acts like one, right? So we see all these things. So the multifaceted purpose of prophecy. So as we kind of think about the next couple of weeks, um, four purposes. One is to know and believe that God alone knows the future. We want, to be set. We, want to, we want to have more faith that God knows than we walked in today. Say, I already believe that. Well, you can believe it more. You know how you know you believe it more? When you start to obey God more. That's how you'll know. You'll say, wow, I, 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 I become fearless like Daniel or fearless like Paul because they believe the promises to a greater degree they could take greater steps of faith. Isaiah 46, declaring the end from the beginning and knowing that from ancient times things that are not yet done. Aren't you glad God knows it all? Amen. Saying, my counsel will stand, I will do my pleasure. He is not at, God is not asking Congress, praise the Lord for that, for what he's going to do. Amen. Amen. He's not asking the governors. He's not asking the CDC. He's not asking the United Nations. Number two, to know and believe that God alone controls the future. A couple of scriptures, the Lord of hosts has said, Surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass. Whatever God says is going to happen is going to happen. Right. He has total control of the future. Number three, to grow our faith and trust in the God of our past, our present, and future. I love Revelation 1.8, and I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, who was and is and is to come. Aren't you glad that Jesus knows your yesterday, your today, 
and your tomorrow. He knew you back on 9-11 when you were all scared like the rest of us were and your hands were up on your face like that. He knew where you'd, he said, he knew you'd survive the next 20 years. He knows how many years you have left, how many breaths are in your lungs. I love the, the, a couple of saints of old, I don't know who originally said it, but said, we are immortal until God is done with us. Because he wants to grow our faith and to know that he holds all this. And then lastly, the, to settle us and to ready us and use us in service while we watch and wait for the return of Jesus. Look to the last verse there, Luke. He says, so he called ten of his servants, delivered them ten minas, and said, do business till I come. Jesus is saying, I want you to be ready, but I want you to be serving me till I come. It would be great if when Jesus comes, I'm in the pulpit. Amen. Or studying or praying, or praying with my wife, or ministering to my kids. There's not, there's not a hierarchy. I'm saying any of those things, as long as I don't want to be doing a sin. I want to be doing his business when he returns. How about you? We have the multifaceted purpose of prophecy. We also, we can trust the past and the perfection of biblical prophecy. We, we know why God wants us to understand it. We know why God wants us to study it. But we really can trust the past. Dr. Harold Wilmington, he cites that uh, there, there, there are prophecies in the Bible that we don't even recognize as prophecies that we won't see until we get to heaven. That will have like glossed right over. And Jesus said, you didn't see that one? Remember he would do this in his own earthly ministry. He would say a verse, he goes, have you not read and they'd be all like, well, yeah, we've read that, but we didn't read it like that. We didn't, even, we didn't know that's what it meant. <clears throat> Paul would do it sometimes, too, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He, says, he takes a verse like, you shall not muzzle the ox. He's like, the rest of them, he's like, why don't you all understand this verse? They're like, well, we thought it meant this. He goes, no, it means also this in the ministry. So that will happen, too. So there'll be prophecies that we haven't even seen as prophecies, but there's many that we clearly can see. And over about 416 have been fulfilled to date. And there's still, again, quite a few left. Uh, this is not an exhaustive list, but it is a definitive list. Uh, an exhaustive list would be hundreds, and I don't have that kind of time, uh, nor do you. But uh, we have certainly some definitive and very paramount things. And so from the garden to Jesus, uh, from the garden to the time of Christ, Going through some of these, we have the promise of his coming right there at the outset. God says, from the seed of Eve or from the seed of woman, he will bruise the head of the serpent. So we, we immediately have the promise of the Messiah. And of course, uh, Eve thought her first son was going to be the Messiah, and then she thought her second son, and so on and so forth. But really, it was 4,000 years later. There's always a gap with God more time than we think. Eve thought, hey, this must be in the next couple of kids. Nope, 4,000 years later in a nation that had not even been formed yet. So we also have the promise of Jesus' tribe, that he'd be from the tribe of Judah, his birthplace, that he'd be born of a virgin. That's in the book of Isaiah. Uh, the working of his miracles. Isaiah writes extensively uh, about the fact that Jesus would do certain miracles, and we see that with his healings and many other things. We have the rejection of the Messiah, Isaiah 53, that he would be rejected, despised of men. You would think that somebody that heals and feeds everyone and raises the dead would be loved, but the Bible says, no, 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 he's going to be rejected. 
the type of his death. In Psalms, it tells us that his hands and feet would be pierced long before crucifixion was even a form of capital punishment. We have the exact time of his entrance. Daniel's 70 weeks, he says that Jesus will come in to Jerusalem, and it tells us the exact date of his entrance into the city. I don't have time to get into all these things right now, just as an overview. We have the creation of Israel as a nation. Israel wasn't even a nation when Abraham was born. Abraham didn't even know he was going to be part of a nation. He was Ur of the Chaldeans. He was not born Jewish. God created the Jewish people from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But before that, there was no Jewish people. There were Semitic people, anyone from the descendants of Shem, but not a Jewish race. That was something that God, but he said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And it still exists a nation today. And of course it's come back. He said the bondage of Israel. He told Abraham, uh, Abraham falls into a sleep. He says for 400 years your descendants will be enslaved and then they'll come out of bondage. He told them they'd come out of bondage. He told them they would go conquer the land of Canaan long before they thought, well, how are we going to do that? You ever seen the kings of Canaan? How are we going to overcome? And of course Joshua comes in and they do that. He tells them well before they wanted a king that they're going to want a king. Guess what? They wanted a king. They got Saul, which was not the greatest prize in the end, and then they got David and they got Solomon. He told them way back in Leviticus, he told it again in Deuter Deuteronomy, uh, that they would turn from him, then they'd be judged, then they'd go into captivity, and then he would show mercy. Guess what happened? They turned from him. <laughs> Do I need to walk through the whole thing? You know what happened, right? He said that they would be restored from captivity. Guess what happened? Seventy years later, they were restored from captivity. He told Daniel about not just the Babylonian Empire that Daniel was already in, but also about the Persians, the Greeks, and the Roman Empire well before, these are hundreds of years before the Roman Empire even comes into existence. And Daniel tells, it's like Daniel's like, here's the future. Here's the kingdoms that are coming. You can watch them. And he tells about a fifth kingdom that's the end of the age where the Antichrist will rise up in the revived Roman Empire. Then we have from Jesus' ministry, his ministry, and we were just reading, and we'll read more in, uh, in the coming weeks, um, from Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse, which is also in the other, that's not in John, but it's in the other Gospels as well. But the Olivet Discourse is where Jesus himself grabs the prophecy mantle, puts it on and says, now let me teach you directly what you disciples need to know. And he also fills in some of the blanks that Daniel left out, that Ezekiel left out. But they, also, they all work together. Ezekiel's piece of the puzzle, Daniel's piece of the puzzle, some of the Psalms, book of Revelation. Then John gets a bunch of things that no one had gotten and all of it comes together and we have the whole prophetic view, which is all that stuff on my screen there, all, all over the map there, all that stuff. But Jesus has his own prophecies. He said that he would not just be convicted, but who would convict him? He said it would be the chief priests that would convict him. He wasn't going to be the Romans. He said how he would die, but if the chief priest convicted him, shouldn't he be stoned to death? That was the Jewish form of stone. That was the Jewish form of punishment, but he was not. He said he would be crucified because the chief priest handed him over to Pilate. So he said how he's going to be crucified or how he would die, which is crucifixion. 
Betty said he would be in the grave for three days. Guess what? He was in the grave for three days. Betty said he would rise from the dead. All of that is prophecy that many Christians and even the world just discount. But if that prophecy doesn't take place, then nothing can come after it. Amen? Amen. That has to happen for the other. That's the foundational things. And all the other prophecies come on top of the prior prophecies. The prophecies uh, of Jesus in Jerusalem in the temple, he was the one that said the temple would be destroyed. Of course, he was hated for even saying that by the religious leaders. Of course, that does happen. He says that Jerusalem will be surrounded, and it was surrounded, and there would be weeping and mourning. That happened. Remember, on the way to the cross, he told the women, he said, I weep. He goes, Yo, he was sad for them because he said, I see your weeping and mourning that's coming. And that did come. We have the prophecies of Jesus regarding the church. He told the apostles that they, when they become the church, they will go through tribulation and be hated. That happened immediately in the first century. They were, and this is where the preterists say all of that was there. To me, it's both and. I mean, that just tells some of the slice of it. Does not, doesn't even come close to me telling the rest of the story. But nevertheless, he was prophetic in that, and of course they were hated. He said that many would come in his name and they would cause great deception. This was had to be a mind blower to them. In their, in their time right there with Jesus, they had to be thinking, hold on a second. People either are with you and believe in you, and by, their, by believing in you and being with you, remember how Peter denied Jesus three times. Why? Because he was afraid to even associate himself with the name of Jesus. And then later they would be persecuted. So it had to be really weird for them to hear when Jesus said, many are going to use my name and will deceive many. They were thinking, no, no, no. Everyone either is with you or against you. And Jesus said, no, there will be like a third group, if you will, that will take my name and they'll build empires in my name. But they won't even know me. They'll even kill other Christians and say I was the one that was leading them to do this. The Inquisitions did this. They tortured Christians in the Spanish Inquisition and Jews. Many people in, 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 were, you know, kicked out the Jewish population there in Spain, the Iberian Peninsula. But all of the things that Jesus said there, that was mind-blowing to them. I mean, really? Yeah, and someday there'll be entire religions, the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints, the Jehovah's Witnesses. There'll be all of these other religions with the name of Jesus, and Jesus says, but they, they'll deceive many. And not always on purpose. A lot of people are blinded because they, were, they grew up taught as a kid that, hey, I'm Hindu, or I'm a Muslim, or I'm, I'm Jehovah's Witness. And when they are presented with the gospel, which is the truth, they are set free. But Jesus nonetheless says, many will use my name, and some of them will become prosperity preachers and have private jets, and they'll make millions of dollars. And people will send, and they'll tell people, send money in, because I'm hurting with my $100 million mansion or whatever else it is. Jesus said all this would happen. It would be deceptive. And then we have Israel being regathered into the land. And this is significant. Did you realize that Jesus, uh, when he, um, in, in all of the discourse, he mentions things that directly tie into Israel having to be back in the land. And then Ezekiel, of course, is really the one in Ezekiel chapter 37 who really, the dry bone, we just sang about the dry bones coming alive. That is all about Israel becoming a nation again. Coming back into the land. 
coming back into the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Did you know that World War II was used by God to fulfill a great prophecy? Because even though Hitler was a diabolical, evil man, his killing of somewhere between 7 million and 12 million Jews and his death camps caused the whole world so much horror when they looked at it, they said, we got to give the Jewish people their own land. And 1948, Israel became a nation again. And it took that incredible amount of suffering and the evil and 50 million people dying in World War II on top of it all, and both Japan and Soviet Union and all over Europe, it took all of that for God to say, but all of that is going to cause a bunch of nations, including England and the United States, all get together and say, we've got to give them their land. And Israel was reborn in 1948, which corresponds to the thing Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse, which corresponds directly to Ezekiel chapter 37, and a huge marker for everything that remains. You ever seen the domino things where someone sets up this incredible domino thing and the person pushes one little domino? Well, the Israel domino had to be put there it was missing for 1,948 years. It had to be put right there for now, somewhere in heaven, God can say at any time, hit it. And they all start to panic because the rest of the prophecies are going to be fulfilled fast. They will come super fast when they come. There's even a saying in business for years, it takes a long time for something to happen, but when it happens, it happens quickly. We see that with technology all the time. It takes a long time to build a, build a device, but when you release it, it proliferates. The iPhone didn't exist until 2007. Now we think it's been here since 1907, right, or something like that, and it hasn't. It has not been here that long. So, bringing this to a close, by the way, Jesus was on the earth, and, and, and we even are so messed up in our modern time, time. Jesus was on the earth closer to the iPhone, closer to 9-11, closer to the walking on the moon than he was to the building of the pyramids. That was 2500 B.C., 2600 B.C., thereabout. And Jesus was much closer to 1969. Neil Armstrong, right? Much closer to that. While I was in Israel, I, I... Saw this, and many people made note of this, so I'm not in alone, but it, it just struck me there at the Holocaust Museum, which was there because of what Adolf Hitler had done, and because of the great pain that still remains in the Jewish people, even to this day, about that. But there it is, Ezekiel 37, 14, right there, in granite, chiseled into the stone, I will put breath into you, and you will live again, and I will set you upon your own soil. And they don't even realize, many of the Jewish people in Israel, that they have seen a great prophecy fulfilled that their Messiah said would take place and they still don't see that he was their Messiah. But yet, it's all there and ready to come together. As we come to a close this morning, you know, we want this prophecy series, it's my desire that you know this prophecy series... Um, that we would know the truth, that we believe on the truth, and we stand on it. Don't shrink back as Jesus gets closer. Press into him. Come closer to him. Let the truth 
Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Let the Word of God strengthen your faith. That He would give you both joy and courage. And we need both, right? Do you need joy or courage in your life? Yes. Right? Yes. You need joy and courage. A joyful, courageous person is a lot better to be around than an angry, courageous person. So marriages, keep that in mind. You know, right? A joyful, courageous person. Be, come together, be joyful, but also courageous. Jesus said, I, I want you to know these things that you are settled and ready. We don't have to fear the future. I love this hymn that was written in the 70s. Because he lives, you can face tomorrow. Right? All the fear. Now, fear doesn't go immediately. I've had plenty of times where I've had way more fear than I wish I had. So if, you, if you're here saying, well, I've never had, I've not had zero fear, join the club. But we get back to the Lord and say, Lord, these things, if you've written them not to scare us but to prepare us, then we can know that you're in control. We can know that you hold the future. We can know. Why? Because Jesus isn't just risen from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's looking down and saying, Father, when do you want me to return? Remember John, end of 22? Surely I'm coming quickly because he lives. But right now, he's there to make, we can make intercession to him. We can receive the strength. And we can say, Lord, I see these things. I understand them. I believe them. And I want to share them with others. Just tying something back to last week as I come to a close. I don't want us to forget last week because I think it's very important. Um, if you're going to live in the age of the end times and things coming to pass rather quickly, and as soon as some of these dominoes begin to start falling, you can get real scared real quick. But if you say, what well, we talked about last week, but Lord, I delight to do your will. It doesn't change our mission. Amen? Our mission's still the same. Do the will of God. Do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. But if he's told us to understand the times, that's part of doing his will, is to understand the times. I'm preaching this because the Lord says, no, they need to know, you need to know, we all need to know these things that Jesus said, if you can look at the weather, if you can look at the skies, you should be able to look at the scriptures. But he wants us to do this delighting in it, right? Delighting to do his will. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just thank you again that you are the Alpha and Omega, that you hold the future, that you hold us in your hands. And we look forward, Jesus, to being with you for all eternity. But until you return, Lord, we want to abide in you and we want to delight in you and we want to do it in not our own strength but in the joy and courage that you provide it's in your name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand as we close in worship?